from the Theology of the Body Institute, this is the Ask Christopher West Podcast. Hello, podcast listeners. Oh, oh, oh dear, excuse me. <laughs> Shall we have a restart? <laughs> uh, well, it is the Theology of the Body right, podcast, you know, okay. that was, that was not that. So sorry, everybody. That just came up right as Wendy hit the record button. We could edit that out, but I think just for the sake of real life realism. <laughs> there it is, baby. There it is. There okay. it is. Okay. Sorry, everybody, but there it was. I, yes. Such is life. Yeah. Even burps reveal the glory of God. You know, I do. I, you, I think it was Peter Cra- Peter Craft. <laughs> Catholic author. Peter Crave said, we know God has a sense of humor because he invented dog farts. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But not only dog farts. He invented our own bodily noises. So if you were offended by my belch, please excuse me. If you have, you know, maybe there's some repressed memories there of a... (laughs) Mother or father or grandparent who scolded you and told you you're not lovable because you just burped, uh, I rebuke those lies. And may my burp serve as a means of healing for those who are wounded in that regard. <laughs> well, we often talk about healing for wounds. And I'm, yes. I'm remembering something from a recent episode, I think it was not the last, but the one before that, where we had a... a listener who had asked about, I remember her using the term old flames. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I she remember was, that one. Um, talking about kind of struggling with her own kind of still feeling this attraction for a man, even though she, you know, hadn't. Am I right? Is yes. That the one? Yes. Okay. Um, I think it was two episodes ago. Okay. Um, yeah. And wondering kind of how was this going to relate to in her future with when, if, you know, God would call her to marriage, and how does her story, her past history, affect that? Right. So anyway, I remember I kind of got on a little bit of a roll in talking um, to this listener, and I kind of reflected back after I said some things um, that were recorded, and then we finished the recording, and I thought, I don't feel so happy about some of the things that came out. Do you remember? Mm, I this? do remember okay. that, yes. And I, I remember... As you were saying it, I was thinking, uh, I hope Wendy offers a little corrective here, yeah. which you did. Yeah. You did offer a little corrective in your answer, so I didn't think to ad- address it anymore myself. No, but but yeah, I think it could maybe use mind. some clarity. Yeah, So, and sometimes this happens to me with being um, being a podcast maker, as someone <laughs> called us recently, uh, you know, that sometimes things that we've said, I feel questions about afterwards, and I'm praying for our listeners. I hope this doesn't uh, cause people to think something that wouldn't be helpful for them, that kind of thing. Can I press into that just for a moment? I just want to say thank you all of our faithful podcast listeners for walking with us. And Mm -hmm. we we know that we come to this table, we come to this podcast with our own perspectives, shortcomings. We're not we're not limited. Yeah. We're we're not claiming everything we're saying is the exact right answer or the full answer. And this is just an acknowledgement of that where both Wendy and I were saying, yeah, yeah, that 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 could probably use some some a little more clarity. Yeah. So the part that I was feeling a little regret about was where I was expressing a hope that this woman would 
um, be called by the Lord to marry someone who would appreciate her journey, would like affirm the good of even that she, you know, the good that the Lord had brought about through that past relationship and that that the Lord maybe would even prepare someone for her who could receive that and love her well. But I said it in a little bit too confident a way. Like, like this is this is what the Lord's going to give you. For sure. Yeah. I don't know that. Yeah. yeah. And I don't I don't know, you know, anybody's story and we are all going to marry if we are married broken people and it could be that their brokenness hits us in a very difficult place, yeah. you know, and yeah. that's not a sign that God doesn't love us, that he doesn't have a plan, but that's just reality. You know? We can speak to that too. We have that in our own story. We have story. it in our own story. You, 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 there, and I remember you sharing this with me throughout our journey together yeah. that you had certain convictions in some of your insecurities as a girl yeah. that where you thought, well, I know the Lord's going to bring a man to me who will just love me there. Right. And, and tell the whole world listening to us right now, if I've loved you really well in those wounded places the whole time we've been married, love. No. <laughs> it's just, I've wanted so, to, but sure. I'm broken and I have, I've wounded you right in those spots. Places, right in those spots where you thought, well, the Lord's going to give me a husband who's going to love me right here. Right. Well, guess what? The Lord gave you a husband who had his own struggles right. and has not loved you perfectly yes. there or anywhere else. So it, while it's possible that the Lord has someone prepared for that particular listener or for any of you that is you know, able to um, anticipate or be ready to respond with grace and truth and affirmation in the places where you need it, that also may not happen, and I don't want to give the impression to anyone that somehow I know that that is your story, yeah. especially not the, the listener who asked the question. Um, just I want to acknowledge that while that's my hope and it is a possibility, it's also not a guarantee that anybody could make. And that's not a sign that you're not called to the vocation of marriage, even with that risk involved right. of having some things that are painful to you, you know, become more painful for a time. Like, listen, this is what we're, we're on this journey of life and it, nobody can promise us anything perfect this side of heaven. Right, right. And, and yet even beyond your, like the underlying truth in what you were saying in mm -hmm. your answer was not only a hope that she would have that, but there's also the, the underlying, underlying truth that Christ is the real bridegroom mm -hmm. of her soul and her whole being, yeah. and he does love her that way. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's the underlying yeah. truth of it all. So I hope that's helpful yeah. to her and to all our listeners. And with that, I'd like to ask you if you have a, an update for our listeners about the work of the Theology of the Body Institute. I do. We we are making some real strides and progress on our YouTube channel. We're, we've had some videos of late that have kind of popped oh, fun. and gone up into the like 500,000 views wow. ra realm. And that's been very encouraging. And I just want, if you are not already aware of our YouTube presence, we'll have our link to our YouTube channel in the show notes here. Go check us out on YouTube. The, we, we have hundreds of videos. Every once in a while, Wendy and I will film uh, an episode of our podcast. Mm -hmm. So you can see the two of us on there as well on our YouTube channel. But just go, go poke around. And if you would, 
be willing to subscribe. There's, you know, that helps the algorithm. It's all about algorithms. And the goal is not just to increase our numbers so we here at the Institute feel better about ourselves. Aren't we awesome? We have X number of thousands <laughs> of subscribers. No, 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 no. Our, our goal is apostolic. We want to reach more and more people with this mm-hmm. good news. And you guys can help us do that in a very simple way by subscribing to our YouTube channel. It helps the algorithm get this message out to more and more people. In fact, you're, you're really kind of forcing YouTube's hand to spread the theology of the body <laughs> by subscribing to our, our channel. So, yeah, and, w- and I'm seeing this more and more. Like, out when I'm on the road, mm-hmm. um, people will come up to me at an event and say, I learned about your, your, the Theology of the Body Institute through your YouTube channel. So it, it is having an impact, and, awesome. and it's a way you can s- play a little role in just being a TOB evangelist by subscribing to the YouTube channel. So go check us out. Awesome. And, go, and not just subscribe to increase the algorithm. Start watching the videos. Yes. There's some really great content. I've had these long-form conversations with some really, really exciting and, and informative people about all kinds of perspectives on the theology of the body. Uh, you can watch those, and I have countless little short videos on topics. I did a whole series on the good news about sex and marriage book. Of course, we have videos from Elizabeth Busby on our team, and we have videos from Bill Donahue on our team, and, and various others. So go, go check it out. Yeah. That's all I have to say about that. That's awesome. For now. Are you ready for a patron question? I am. Thank you, dear patron. Who is this patron? An, an anonymous, anonymous patron. patron. Thank you, anonymous patron, for your support of our work. So grateful. Dear Christopher and Wendy, thank you for the truth, beauty, and compassion you bless us listeners with every week. You are welcome. My question is regarding couples who've been married in the Catholic Church, got divorced without having received an annulment, and are civilly, quote, remarried to other people. It's often suggested to couples in this situation who desire full communion with the Church to live as brother and sister so that they can receive the sacraments again. When... Would it be appropriate or not appropriate to recommend this option to such couples? And what exactly would living as brother and sister entail? The idea seems to have been reduced to the mere abstaining from sexual intercourse. But doesn't faithfulness to one's wedding vows demand more than mere sexual fidelity? Wouldn't there still be some type of emotional adultery Mm. at work? Wow, wow. I've encouraged my own mother to return to confession along with the, quote, brother and sister option for her and her partner because I'm concerned for her soul and desire so much for her to return to a state of grace. But now, after having learned so much through TOB about the sacredness of marriage and what it signifies, I just don't feel right about this solution anymore. It seems like infidelity toward the original sacramental marriage. I'm also concerned about the effect this has on the children of the divorced couples, particularly with regards to their relationships with others and God. They internalize, as I did, the lie that people are replaceable and subconsciously develop the fear that if I'm not perfect, God just might divorce me too. Oh, oh, man. Sorry for such a long question, but I would really love your insights to help me understand. No need to apologize for the length of your reflection here. I think it it really serves well uh, the purpose of your question, just to show us your own reflections on it. And that last line, can you reread that, Wendy, about... The, the, yes. the impact that I have to be perfect or the Lord's going to divorce me. 
Children internalize, as I did, the lie that people are replaceable and subconsciously develop the fear, if I'm not perfect, God just might divorce me, too. Wow. Wow. Okay, this is exactly what is at stake in the church's teaching on marriage and divorce. And it's not just the church's teaching. Who's the church? The church is the bride of Christ. An infidelity to her bridegroom, Jesus Christ, the church holds fast to the truth that Jesus proclaimed, that we cannot separate what God has joined. And Jesus said, if you divorce your wife and marry another, you've committed adultery. What is Jesus saying? That divorce may be a piece of paper in a courthouse that has some legal ramifications, but it does not change the reality that in God's eyes, you are still married to this other person. And if you're married to one person and you're behaving like you're married to somebody else, what you're actually doing, you're not married to that other person, you're actually committing adultery against the person you're really married to. This is the teaching of Jesus. Why does Jesus teach this? Precisely because of the sacramentality of marriage. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a great mystery, and it refers to Christ and the church. What does this mean? John Paul II says that it is of special merit to St. Paul that he brings these two marriages together, the marriage of man and woman and the marriage of Christ and the church, and makes of them one great sign, one great sacrament. They are so intertwined. There is such a, you could say, a marriage of these marriages, right? There is a marriage of marriages, the marriage of man and woman and the marriage of Christ and the church. These two marriages are married, which means for a man to leave his wife is to say at the very same time, Christ has left the church. That's impossible. But look, this is what I so admire about her, her thoughtfulness in this question, is she's saying, that's exactly my experience. That's how I feel. That's how I feel. This is what I internalized, that Christ could divorce me, could leave me. What does Jesus say? I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. This is what is at stake in the church's teaching. Mm. This is precisely, and I thank you, dear listener, mm -hmm. for your courage in being honest about your own life experience. And you are confirming right there the whole teaching principle of John Paul II and his entire approach, which is to demonstrate that the church's teaching, even the most challenging and difficult, teach, difficult teachings of the church, are not imposed on us from the outside. But if we have the courage, as you have had, to reflect on your deepest and most honest experiences, we will find in those experiences a confirmation of what the church teaches. Because we're made in the image and likeness of God. We're made for a perfect love. And that means there's a record in our being of, of the church's vision. There's an echo in our hearts, John Paul II says, of God's original plan. And absolutely everything the Catholic Church teaches is saying, listen to that echo. This is what you're made for. This is what you're worthy of. This is what you're designed for. Don't undercut yourself. Don't, 
Don't undermine the deepest desires of your own heart and don't be deceived by counterfeit fulfillments. Don't be deceived by counterfeit happiness. I'm, again, I'm just so so impressed with the, the depth of this person's reflection. Mm-hmm. But there, there are many layers to the question yeah. that uh, I don't know that we have time to get into absolutely every layer of it. But, but let me try, if I can remember some of the layers, let me try to address uh, in, a, in a more logical mm-hmm. way um, some of these questions. Again, evidence of how thorough she's looking at this, thoroughly she's looking at this, is this point she brings up. Under what circumstances, in a situation where someone was married, the marriage is still valid, at least uh, from all we know, we have to assume it's valid, and has attempted a marriage with someone else. And we have to say attempted a marriage because this person's still married. Uh, and we have to assume that, right? Now, there is the annulment process. And just briefly, I'll say a word about that. An annulment, a de- declaration of nullity is not a Catholic version of divorce. It's not saying you were once married and now you're no longer married. A Catholic declaration of nullity is a, th- a thorough process through which the church determines in certain situations Despite all appearances, you were never validly married to begin with. Marriage is not some magic trick. You stand at the altar and you get zapped and now you're married. You're only married if you commit to what marriage is and if you have the freedom and psychological capacity to commit to what marriage is. And there are many, many circumstances in which couples do not have that capacity or they did not really commit to marriage to what marriage is. So the church can determine through a thorough evaluation that in some circumstances, this was not a valid marriage. So I just wanted to give that quick uh, uh, explanation because that's part of this equation here. Mm -hmm. So let's assume it was a valid marriage and that person has left that spouse and now has entered into another sexually active relationship with somebody else that some people call marriage, but is not really a marriage because you're actually still married to the other person. You can't be married to two people at the same time. And you come to a conviction. Oh my gosh, I'm still married to this other person, but I'm living as if I'm married to this person. This relationship is actually an adulterous relationship. The church says in circumstances, and she's asking what might be the circumstances. Well, here's a very clear circumstance where you have children with this other person, right? Now you have, you, now you have a responsibility even though you've brought these children into the world in an unlawful way, uh, they're still your children. And now you have a, a responsibility towards these children that you've brought into the world. And it may not be recommendable for the sake of these children that you live in a separate house, right? So in fulfilling your responsibilities to these new offspring, it could, could be advisable that you stay in this house and you raise these children with this father or mother uh, through whom these children have come into the world, but you are not living as husband and wife. And at a bare minimum, that means you're not sleeping in the same bed, you're not engaging in the marital act, uh, and you're, you're not living, and that's, that is specifically, when you reduce it down, that is specifically what living as husband and wife means. It means you're engaged in the marital act. But she rightly is not satisfied with the bare minimum. Mm-hmm. And we should never be satisfied with the bare minimum. And she rightly, and, I'm, and I just want to commend you uh, for, for saying, wait, there's more to this equation. You can't, you can't just be legalistic here and say, well, we're not having sex. We're, we're not living as husband and wife. 
just as you can't reduce the, the, the marital relationship to the sexual act, although the sexual act is the consummate expression of, of the marital relationship, you can't reduce it to that. Similarly, you can't reduce we're not living as husband and wife to we're not having sexual intercourse. Yes, there, there could remain a kind of emotional infidelity. And yet, life is messy. Life is complex. You've had children with this person. There's a new reality here that was never part of the original plan of God, but God is not afraid of our complexities. God is not afraid of our messes. And God is ready and willing with tenderness and love to work with us in and through all of our messiness and complexities. And God loves these children that have come into the world through what we would absolutely recognize here as a relationship that was, is not in keeping with God's plan. Nonetheless, here are these children. There's a new complex situation. You could and should continue to, to cooperate with this mother or father of your children and raise them together and live in the same house and do so. But there should be a recognition, as this person recognizes, of not, not um, toying around with, with each other's hearts as if we were husband and wife, not, um, not pursuing a, a romantic relationship in that regard. And that, I mean, again, this is complex. This is difficult. You've already brought children into the world. You've already been living together as, as if you were husband and wife for how many years? Can this really happen? Is this really even possible? With human beings in their failings and faults and sinfulness, no, this is not possible. But with God, all things are possible. Right? This is exactly the response of the closest followers of Jesus when Jesus laid this out. If you divorce your wife and marry another, you commit adultery. What did the closest followers of Jesus have to say about that? Well, if that's the case with a husband and wife, it's better not to get married. Mm. Forget, I can't do that. And yep, nope, you can't. You're looking at your own resources. You can't do that. And what did Jesus say when they said that? Oh, you're right. Let, let me not make my teaching so demanding. Let me water that down a little bit. Let me change that to, to, to uh, more, more correspond to your weak and broken humanity. No, that's not what Jesus said. He said, you're right. With men, this is impossible. If you're just looking at your own faults and failings and weaknesses, you can't do this. But then he said, with God, all things are possible. So let's apply it. Is it possible for a man and a woman who have lived as, as if they were husband and wife when they weren't because one or the other was already married to somebody else. But they have been living as if they're husband and wife and they brought children into the world. What do they do now? Is it possible for them to live in the same house as brother and sister and as brother and sister raise those children that they have brought into the world? Can they, with God's grace, learn the path of what it means to love one another rightly in this new, complex, messy situation, and live in fidelity, rightly, to the person to whom they're actually married by not taking on a relationship with somebody else. In fact, let me just add this. There might be good reason that they separated from their, their, the spouse to whom they're validly married. Maybe there was some very good reason that there's, it's, they couldn't and shouldn't even go back to that valid marriage. There could be any number of reasons. There could be abuse there, There could whatever. But there could really be a situation in which this is the proper thing, to stay remaining in the same house, raising those children, and living as brother and sister. 
and keeping the proper emotional and physical boundaries, is that possible? With men and women, broken men and women, this is impossible. But with God, this is possible. How awesome must this God be who can really work miracles of grace in our lives to enable that to happen? And that's exactly what is at stake. If we say that is not possible, we are leaning into human brokenness and failing to see the glory and the grace of the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is what is at stake, the real power of redemption to enable us to be faithful to the integrity and purpose and meaning of love in our real humanity. I'm feeling the challenge of this question. There are lots time. of layers to it. As, as, Big yeah. time. Oh, boy. Um, and I, I'm feeling also that in the case of this particular questioner, uh, she hasn't indicated that her mother and new, quote, husband um, have children together. She was referencing herself as, yes, a, yes. as the child of her own parents. So, it, you know, in their situation, it could be that they don't have children together, which was kind of part of your reasoning yeah, I, I for was, keeping people together. Yeah, I was using that as a clear example right. of a reason to stay in the same house. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I was just using that for an example. Yeah. yeah. I I think, I guess what I'm wondering here is whether um, it, the church is kind of allowing for the reality of people on a journey. And I think that this listener is seeing the truth of God's heart in some ways that um, is something that few people see, and yet it's worth seeing because it's from God's heart. People need to grow. This this person, you know, that she's talking about, her own mother, is in some ways far from the Lord right now. I mean, clearly, you know, she has a whole story and a whole journey of her own. And her daughter is longing for her to take, to turn and mm-hmm. go closer to the mm-hmm. Lord. And really, it is within the Lord's power to take her much closer to him in a short amount of time. But it may be that his path for her is not going to be as fast. And and that first step of the turning back, the turning toward, which would be acknowledged by going to confession and acknowledging, I have, quote, attempted marriage, and I know now this is not truly marriage, and I want my life to change to be in accord with that truth, that that first step is something that is hugely significant and sets the life in that direction. If you could look at me, I'm Italian. I'm talking with my hands. I'm pointing. (laughs) I have a person going one direction and turning, and it's a painful turn. Can you picture this, listeners? Like, oh, straining to turn in a new direction. Hey, Wendy. Yeah. This is why we should be on YouTube more often. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) So I I just, I, I feel like what this daughter is seeing is just turning a little bit okay, that's important, but like there's more to it. And I think you're totally correct. And it's beautiful. You're seeing the deeper truths of what does it, what does it mean to be faithful to that spouse that you were once married to? The problem here is that 
is the complexity of that history and whether it's even remotely possible to have any kind of emotional connection with that person and the journey of, say, your mother or other people to allow the Lord into those needs in your heart for closeness, for deep sharing, for um, being seen and loved. That's what that turn in direction should lead towards. And that's, I think, what you're seeing is the vision for like a real, true healing of what was broken in the relationship with the Lord in this story, whether or not the original marriage can be healed, something in in the relationship with the Lord, it would be false to claim that somehow it's totally back on track simply because of this abstaining and going to confession. And I think that's the truth that this listener is seeing. Well said, Wendy. Yes, yes. And we, we, we must affirm the challenge and the the grace involved and the acceptance of that grace involved in making that first step. Mm-hmm. And we must recognize it's a first step. Mm-hmm. There are many more steps to be taken, but let's rejoice in that first step. Mm. And we don't have to, we shouldn't, it, put it this way, if we, if we thought now, now everything's right, yeah. that wouldn't correspond to reality. Mm-hmm. But let's also rejoice, wow. Grace has visited your house today. What's that scene in the gospel? Um, some somebody climbs a tree. He's short. Oh, Lazarus. No, no, no. no I'm no. sorry, not uh, Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus. Thank you. Zacchaeus climbs the tree to see Jesus, and and Zacchaeus uh, brings Jesus to his house, and 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 he says, "I'm going to sell half of, uh, or I'm going to give away half of all that I've taken in the wrong, you know, all that stuff." And and Jesus says, "Salvation has visited your house today." Mm-hmm. Well, that's not the end of Zacchaeus's journey. Right. That's just the beginning. Mm-hmm. But look how celebratory Jesus is. Right. And we should have that same celebratory mm. uh, attitude when people make really important steps in the right direction. Right. But we should also acknowledge, as she does, there's still more. Yeah. Still more. And that's the truth for all of us. Nobody walks to Jesus on a straight path. <laughs> mm. Ready for the next question? I'm ready. Okay. This is from Craig. Hi, Craig. Thank you, Christopher and Wendy, for the work you do. I remember 25 years ago when I was a college student doing my senior philosophy thesis on Humanae Vitae and reading about the theology of the body, and I believe some of your material at that time. Fast forward to now, I've been married 20 years and am the proud dad to nine beautiful children. Aw, wow. You've stated consistently in your material that the church clearly states that mutual acts of intimacy which do not involve intercourse, but which result in orgasm for one or both spouses, are evil. I've not been able to find anything in the catechism to support this. So I have two questions. One, where does the church teach this? And two, what harm or damage to the marriage is the church protecting couples from if they engage in these acts? Beyond the reality of sin itself, what harm do these acts do to a marriage, especially if the couple cannot engage in intercourse for extended periods of time? Craig, thank you so much for your question. Thank you for your honesty in posing it. And I'm happy, happy to address it. I'm going to take you right back to where you wrote your thesis, which was Humanae Vitae. For those of us 
who may not know what Humanae Vitae is, for whatever reason, you know, the church still uses the Latin titles for encyclicals. Humanae Vitae is Latin for the document of human life. came out in 1968. St. Paul VI wrote it as a reaffirmation of what all Christian churches taught up until 1930, that rendering the sexual act sterile is contrary to God's plan. And, and here I want to zoom in on the word adultery. We think of adultery as, you know, having sex with somebody uh, you're not married to when you are married or that other person is married. We call it acts of adultery, right? But look at the word adultery, the Latin uh, ad alter, ad alter. It means to change something from God's original design. We adulterate something when we change it from God's original design. God's original design is for the two to become one flesh, right? And in becoming one flesh, what are we doing? We are activating our genitals. We're activating the generative power of our genitals. But when we both activate our generative power and then thwart it with contraception, we are committing a kind of adultery in as much as we are altering the sexual act from God's original design. We are, we, are, we are taking what God designed and we're altering it. We're saying, God, I don't like the way you made this. I'm going to alter it. That's an act in the literal sense of the word of adultery, of altering God's original design. What is God's design for ejaculation, for male climax? God's design for the male climax and let's add, God's design for the female climax, it's a generative design. The seed is designed by God to be planted in the garden. And if, um, a male climax obviously is the giving of the seed, but the female climax is also designed to facilitate the traveling of the seed so that the seed finds the egg. To seek an orgasm Apart from that design is an act of, in the sense of the word we're using it, it's an act of adultery. We are altering the design. We are altering God's plan. We are isolating the pleasure from the true embrace of marriage. So the church's teaching here is founded upon the principle of the inseparability of the unitive and procreative meanings of the act. Climax itself, both male and female climax, has a unitive and a procreative meaning. And when we separate orgasm from the union of genital intercourse, look at the very phrase, genital union, genital intercourse. When we separate climax from genital intercourse, we are, we are not only attacking the procreative meaning of the union, we're, we're also attacking the unitive meaning because there's no union. The purpose of the sexual climax is loving as God loves, right? Jesus gives us the new commandment, love one another as I have loved you. Then he says, I tell you this so that my joy might be in you and your joy might be complete. Who designed the joy of sexual climax? God. For what end? 
It's meant to be the joy of loving as God loves. God himself, the Trinity, the Trinity is not sexual. Let me say that loudly, clearly. God is not sexual. But our sexuality, and by that I mean our creation as male and female and the call of the two to become one flesh, our sexuality is a created reflection of the life-giving communion of the Holy Trinity, not in a sexual way, but in an eternal divine way. God is generating the Son. The Father is generating the Son to share in the communion of the Holy Spirit, right? The marital embrace, genital intercourse of husband and wife is a sacramental participation in that glorious divine mystery. To isolate sexual climax, to, uh, to pursue, intentionally pursue a sexual climax apart from that unitive and generative meaning, the end is no longer imaging the Trinity. The end is no longer loving as God loves. The end becomes an isolated experience of pleasure apart from communion and apart from the possibility of new life. And just as contraception is wrong, so too is that act wrong because it is a contraceptive act. I mean, why is coitus interruptus immoral? Coitus interruptus being I, uh, a man withdraws at the last minute of intercourse and spills his seed on the ground. Uh, Or the ground. I mean, that's the biblical report, right? Mm -hmm. Onan spilled his seed on the ground and he was slayed uh, because this is a death-dealing act. This is a rupturing act. Uh, Right at the moment of the climactic, unitive, and generative power, right at the moment of truth, we say, nah, not going to take that risk, not going to go for that, not going to enter this communion. I do like the pleasure of the sensations in my genitals, so I still want those, but I don't want it according to the design of God. So I alter the design, and I adulterate the act. I commit an act, in the literal sense of the word, of adultery, by altering the act. What is the damage here? It was interesting the way Craig phrased this. He said, besides sin... What's the damage here? There's nothing besides... (laughs) Sin is damaging. Sin is sin because it is utterly contrary to our being. And when we act in a way contrary to our being, it damages us. If it wasn't damaging, it wouldn't be sin. Uh, If it wasn't sin, it wouldn't be damaging. Why is sin so grievous? Because it damages us. And we might say, well, I don't feel damaged. It's because we've numbed ourselves to our pain. We have numbed ourselves to our pain. Uh, A world that sells us a counterfeit version of love at the very same time must sell us all manner of numbing agents to to keep us from recognizing the pain we are in. Uh, we, in order to get down to the truth of this, we have to have the courage to remove our numbing agents so we can begin to feel the pain we are in so that we can allow that pain to instruct us. All of that said, I also have to throw this into the mix. Chastity does not demand when a couple needs to abstain that they never kiss one another, that they never touch one another, that they never hold one another, that they never caress one another. 
it does demand that we never pursue sexual climax apart from the full embrace of holy communion, right? But all of the touches, caresses, kisses of a husband and a wife are holy and good in themselves uh, so long as we're not pursuing a mockery of the marital act. And a mockery of the marital act would be the pursuit of climax apart from the full embrace of communion. Whenever we engage our generative power, but then thwart it, right? Whenever we go the whole way, and the church here would talk about a completed act. And by completed act, the church means an act of sexual climax. The only context for a completed act is a completed act of intercourse. If we complete the generative power through climax, but we do so in a way that generation is impossible, as in an act of masturbation, well, that's what it is. It's an act of masturbation. When a husband and a wife stimulate each other to sexual climax apart, intentionally, and apart from the marital embrace, the proper classification, or the technical word here would be the proper species of the act. What's its proper name? Masturbation. Mutual masturbation, that is stimulating the genitals to climax apart from the true gift of self and the marital embrace is always wrong, is always wrong. And it's damaging to us because it's contrary to the call to love as God loves. It's a failure in the call to love as God loves. Um, I'm, I'm being kind of technical in my verbiage here to just offer clarity. That clarity is, is very important, but also I, I want you to hear it pastoral sensitivity, brother, in my, in my answer as well, which is this. I get it, brother. I get it. Uh, it, it abstinence is not easy. Uh, uh, sexual climax is very pleasurable and desirable. Uh, I want to be close to my wife. I want to invite you to a closeness with your wife that doesn't involve sexual climax. And that might seem right now an impossibility, but I'm speaking from experience here, it is possible, possible to grow in being master of my sexual responses. And that mastery itself is a difficult journey, but it's the journey that enables us to be a true gift, a real gift to the other person. If we are not master of our sexual responses and they are masters of us, then we're not free to be a gift. We're not loving in the image of God. All that the church teaches is a call to be faithful to those words of Jesus, love one another as I have loved you. And let me just throw in, again, for clarity in regard to your question, where does the church teach this? The church teaches this in everything she teaches about the inseparability of the unitive and procreative meanings of the marital act. Mm. Humanae Vitae, it's in the catechism, it's in the whole tradition of the church. That's good. And I... I just wanted to say something, um, just take a little bit different angle for Craig and his wife, as it seems implied in the question that they may be experiencing a need to have a longer time of abstinence in their marriage. Um, and we do speak from experience of having gone through something similar. Um, and I just want to kind of turn your question around a little bit and, and give you a question to think about. Craig, you asked, what harm could this cause um, if we can't engage in intercourse for uh, a, an extended period of time? I, I just want to ask you. Can I just clarify? He's, he's saying, 
what harm would it cause if we pursued sexual climax right. during the time that we're not enabled to ha- when we're not able to have the yes. full embrace? Mm-hmm. What I want to ask you is this: What incredible graces could come to your marriage from embracing something difficult Preach together? Preach it, Wendy. Preach it. Um, and I don't mean that in some kind of fake way. In our experience, our extended time of abstinence was so fruitful, so grace-filled, that the insights that each of us gained in understanding one another and um, in really loving one another through that time are treasures for Mm us. Mm -hmm. Yes. And that included honest sharing of the pain and ache and longing Mm -hmm. for our union. So I don't want to say that like, Oh, well, that was easy. Walk through the park. Look at that. Now now we've got all these extra graces. That's awesome. Uh, They're hard-won graces. And I just want to ask you that. What could you be missing out on if you um, decided to numb yourself rather than experience both the suffering and the joy of drawing closer, really, to one another and to the Lord through this time? That's yeah. my question for you. Thank you, Wendy. That, that, thank you for preaching that that hard truth. It is a hard truth. But what is to be gained here? What is to be gained is the joy of self-mastery, right? To, to be able to say, I am master of myself. I am master of my impulses. I am master of my desires. And I can put them at the service of honoring the true dignity and beauty of my wife, of her womb, and of my own body and its potency. That's what's to be gained. Mm. Woo! Next question is from an anonymous listener who asks, can you explain how the incarnation was not God's plan B? Ah, it would take a doctoral dissertation to really get into it. I don't have the time for that, obviously, here. But he's getting at something John Paul II says in his Theology of the Body. And it's a, it's a kind of quiet papal response to an age-old theological debate between primarily the Franciscans and the Dominicans. And the, the debate was, if we had not fallen, would the incarnation still have happened? The Dominicans said no. The Franciscans said yes. JP2, as Pope, quietly, without fanfare, slipped this into his Wednesday audience addresses, and he's basically saying, on this point, the Franciscans were closer to the reality of the truth. But all that said, let's just uh, rewind and say, it's an abstract question, because we don't have an unfallen world. We have a fallen world. This is the only world we got. Uh, but nonetheless, theologians love to press in and say, what if, or what if that? And there's some merit to that, that we can gain things in, we can gain an understanding of the heart of God by pressing into even questions that in the end, they don't really matter because that's not the world we have. But what do we learn of the heart of God by recognizing the incarnation is not plan B? In other words, even if we had not fallen, it was God's plan for the word to be made flesh. What insight into the heart of God do we gain? We really gain some really rich and beautiful insights. And it is this, primarily. God's plan from eternity is to give his son a bride. 
And what is marriage? Marriage is a union in the flesh, where the two become one flesh. If God's eternal plan is for his son to have a bride, then God's eternal plan is that his son would take flesh so that he could become one flesh with us. God's eternal plan, and it says it right in scripture, from from before the foundation of the world, we were chosen in Christ to be one body with Christ. It says elsewhere in scripture that the plan of the Lord stands forever. And another very important theological truth here is that sin does not change God's plan. And, and, and the idea that Christ only would have come if we sinned, it's like God's looking up there, oh my gosh, they ruined everything. Now I have to send my son to fix it. That's a different understanding of God than God always desired his son to have a bride. God always envisioned the incarnation. And the catechism says this, that the incarnation is the fulfillment of the plans of God that he envisaged before the creation of the world. Right? What did God God envisage envisage, that's a fancy word. Uh, What did God intend for the creation of the world before the creation of the world? He intended the entire physical universe to be taken up into the divine life. And the only way that can happen, the, 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 the creation itself cannot lift itself up to the divine. God has to do it. And how does God lift us up to the divine? By descending into the human into the realm of creation itself. God descends in order to ascend, to take the created world up into the divine, to be divinized. The goal of creation itself is divinization. The goal of creation is divinization. The only way that happens is by God himself entering his creation to ascend with his creation into the life of the Trinity. That is the plan of God from eternity. What did sin do? It did not change the plan of God. It took it on a detour. The way the marriage is now consummated in this fallen world is through the suffering and death of the incarnate word, right? We could say the suffering and death of the incarnate word is the result of sin, but not the incarnation and not the gift of his body. God always intended for his son to take flesh and say to his bride, this is my body given up for you. The tragedy of the fallen world is that when the son of God took flesh and said to his bride, this is my body given up for you, instead of rejoicing and receiving it to the full, we took his body and nailed it to a tree. And yet even there, he didn't withhold the gift. He continued to give it. He continued to pour it out. And there was one at the foot of the cross, a woman, the new Eve, who said, I receive, I open, I open, I receive your gift, even in this ugly, horrific manner in which it's being given, ugly not from Christ's side, but ugly from the side of us nailing him to the tree, Mary stood at the foot of the cross and said, amen, amen, I receive. Even in this horrible manifestation of this gift, I receive, and I'm not afraid to be here at the foot of the cross. So there, there is no plan B. Uh, John Paul II says, 
that even in the beginning, before sin entered the world, they were holy in view of the incarnation. The grace of original nakedness, he says, is in view of the nakedness of Christ, the, the f- word made flesh, uh, even though it preceded the incarnation, right? The incarnation is always in God's mind, always in his heart. It's not plan B. There's one plan that his son would have a bride. Sin took it on a detour. The death of the Lord rectified that. The resurrection of the Lord restored it. And now we're back on track for the marriage of the Lamb. Hmm. That was an intense theology class yeah, right there at the end of our podcast. Whoop, 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 whoop. Amazing. <laughs> it is amazing. But God's plan is amazing. For me, not being a theologian, the part that is most attractive is when you say, what does this tell me about the heart of God? Because I'm more of like, a, oh, yeah, I want to understand your heart, Lord. So thank you for the time in particular spent on that and his um, just ever-present love for his son and love for the bride of his son and desire for their union. It's awesome because I'm in the bride of the son category and I like that God loves me. Yeah, I like that too. <laughs> and I'll just add this one more point, which is one of my favorites, that the union of man and woman in one flesh right from the beginning is a proclamation of the incarnation. Right from the beginning, the two become one flesh. And that, as St. Paul says, is a great mystery that refers to the incarnation and the Eucharist. It refers to Christ taking flesh and becoming one flesh with us, which we do in the Eucharist. The Eucharist was always God's plan, always God's plan. Uh, yeah, there it is. There it is. Let's, how about this? Let's say yes to God's eternal plan. Mm. Yes, let's yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. We want to say yes, Lord. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, <laughs> yes, Lord. Amen. Okay. That's all I have to say about that for now. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in this week. We hope it was a blessing yes. to you to be with us. Look forward to being with you again on our next episode. Hit that share button and get this good news out to somebody who needs to hear it and keep the questions coming. And when do you take it away? Please remember... You are a gift. Become what you really are, a gift. Amen. Ask Christopher West is brought to you by the Theology of the Body Institute with music by Mike Mangione. Christopher and Wendy hope that the information provided is helpful to you, but remind you that they are not licensed counselors. If you're going through serious difficulty, a list of trusted counselors and psychologists can be found in the show notes. 